seated. I'm glad you're here tonight. Welcome. Zechariah chapter 7, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come near to the uh, end of the Old Testament and uh, uh, in Zechariah, and uh, maybe slowing down just a little bit, maybe it's an unconscious uh, uh, desire not to leave the Old Testament, and uh, again, uh, uh, not knowing whether I'll ever return to it in, in the sense of this, uh, this pulpit, and so all of it is, is uh, such a blessing. In, in chapter 7, verse 1, um, the uh, context uh, of what uh, this new section, and it is a new section of Zechariah uh, that begins here. And it begins with, Now in the fourth year of King Darius it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of Chislev. So we remember that the book of Zechariah, uh, ver- chapters 1 through 6, well, wait, wait a second, you moved. You're giving me vertigo. Sometimes people move from a very assigned place for them, and it, and it creates troubles for me. I'm just kidding with you. So remember the first six chapters that we've gone through in, in the book of Zechariah, that they constituted a series of six visions that God gave to Zechariah with spiritual meaning, uh, and then an angel of the Lord uh, interpreted those visions for Zechariah, and then he spoke those visions as a communication to uh, the Lord's people. Now when we come to chapter 7, all the way through to the end of the book, uh, it takes the, a, a more traditional form like um, the prophet uh, Isaiah or Jeremiah, where these are straightforward kind of prophecies that are made without visions to uh, the children uh, of Israel and to Judah at the time in which they returned from their Babylonian captivity. The dates are important here as it relates to how they're laid out there in verse 1. It tells us that these uh, prophecies that are given to Zechariah here come fully two years after uh, the prophecies that took the form of the visions. It also informs us that the four-year project of rebuilding the temple, they had come back into the land to rebuild the temple after its destruction by the Babylonians, is halfway toward completion. It was a four-year project. They're two years into the project. So that helps us to understand a little bit about what uh, is going on. Apparently, either uh, Jews that were still in Babylon at, at this point voluntarily or Jews that have returned to the land of Israel. Uh, They have a renewed hunger and desire to be pleasing to God, know that they are uh, right with God and bringing pleasure to God, obeying Him. And uh, so in this desire, in this kind of spiritual revival that is taking place inside of uh, of their hearts, they begin asking questions about their kind of uh, current spiritual uh, practices. And that lays the groundwork for verse 2. And uh, when the people, that is the Jewish people, again, either in Babylon or uh, more likely in the uh, outside of Jerusalem in the larger area of Judah and and of of Israel, some even venture to guess that it's uh, from Bethel that the message comes. The people, they sent uh, Sherezer with Regimelech and his men. They sent him to the house of God in Jerusalem to pray before the Lord. And, and that was the first thing they had been sent to Jerusalem to do. And then for our purposes here, uh, related to Zechariah, there was a second purpose. And to ask the priests who were in, uh, who were in the house uh, of the Lord of hosts, that is the temple, and the prophets saying, and here's their question, should I weep on the fifth month and fast as I have done for so uh, many years. And so they come in this delegation and uh, while they were in Babylon, the 70 years of the Babylonian uh, captivity, uh, they had uh, instituted a new tradition. 
And that was to fast on the ninth day of the fifth month to commemorate or to mourn uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. So the Babylonian captivity is over. They've been freed to return back into the land of Judah and of of Israel, the temple's being rebuilt, and they wonder now, is there any need to continue this particular uh, fast? And during the Babylonian captivity, they had also instituted a fast on the ninth day of the fourth month, which was a fast that was uh, uh, instituted in order to commemorate the day that the city wall of Jerusalem was breached by the Babylonians. They also incorporated a fast on the 10th day of the 10th month, the day that marked the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, siege of the city of Jerusalem leading uh, to its fall. It's important to realize, related to what's going on here, that these fasts that they had instituted and initiated were completely self-initiated. Uh, they were not commanded by the Lord. These fasts were self-imposed uh, and they were man-made, man-originating uh, in uh, uh, observances that they had put uh, into practice. And God now answers this question that has been posed to uh, to Zechariah and to the priests there in the temple in a series of four uh, short messages. And his first message begins in verse 4. And then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all of the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? And then he, then he knows that sometimes we can just be, not be listening to him completely. And he said, for me. He said, when you uh, eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous uh, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Shouldn't you have listened to the Word of God, returned to the Word of God, obeying His Word when the, the southern kingdom of Judah was being greatly blessed by me and I sent my prophets to warn you against your disobedience that was going to bring uh, judgment. It was going to bring a curse upon them in the form of, of the Babylonian invasion and the Babylonian uh, captivity. So the, what God does here is He questions their motive behind establishing uh, the fast. And so He makes, when He, he declares it, it, His answer, it's a small group of people relatively small, that have brought the question to the priests that Jeremiah is answering here. God is answering through Jeremiah. But the answer is so important that God now speaks it to all of the priests and to all of the land. It didn't have a, a, a small uh, audience or application. Everybody that had returned to the land uh, of Israel. And he questioned them concerning their, uh, the true motive in fasting for those 70 years when he says, did you really fast for me? So evidently, they fasted as an expression of their mourning uh, as, a, an, a, as an expression of their lamentation uh, over the consequences of their sin supremely. They, they fasted over their mourning over the destruction of the temple. They mourned their Babylonian captivity. But apparently they did not mourn uh, over the sins that they committed that resulted in their captivity that resulted in the consequences uh, of their sin. And this is a very, very important distinction that God is making here. It's one thing to lament the consequences of my sin. It's another thing entirely to lament the, uh, the committing the sin that then brought the consequences into my life. So it, 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 it is a, the, the first one is very, very real, to lament the consequences of my sin, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, but it is an inferior kind of lamentation in that it's always largely self-centered. I feel bad for myself, and I feel bad for the price that I'm paying for my sin. 
uh, uh, but a, a, a lamentation related to the fact that I sinned at all, that brought these consequences uh, into my life, that takes into an account that my sin has not only affected me, but my sin has now affected God. It has affected His name and reputation in the world. And it has affected God's people. It's affected uh, other people uh, around me. And so it begins to take, not merely take the consequences into account, but it takes uh, into account uh, the, the damage that's been done to others and to God uh, as well. The harm that's been done to my relationship with God, uh, that this, uh, this uh, sin in my life has grieved the Holy Spirit, has perhaps even quenched the Holy Spirit in my life, the harm that my sin has done to my relationship, uh, to my Christian witness before others, the damage that has been done related to that. And even as they had in their sin, sure, they bore tremendous consequences for their sin in the Babylonian captivity. But what they needed to lament is what they had also done to God's reputation among the Gentile nations as a result of their sin. God's name was mud. Nobody was interested in following the God of the Jews after what they had seen uh, them do. And then apparently he couldn't take care of them because they went into Babylonian captivity, not realizing that God had done that as a means uh, of chastening. And, and it's one of the great things about getting a little bit older in the Lord and maturing as a result of that is that when we sin or uh, when we fail in a situation and we immediately realize that there's going to be consequences to this, the first consequence after a little while as we grow, maybe it happened to you immediately upon uh, your first five minutes of being born again. But one of the things that happens is the first thing that we become conscious of in terms of the damage that has been done is to our relationship with God. It isn't that this is going to get me into trouble. This is going to have far-reaching consequences. It is, yes, I know that this is going to have consequences in my life, but the most important consequence I am experiencing right now is I have lost intimacy with my relationship with God. I have somehow, there's a distance here now in my sin, and I can not function, I cannot operate as a Christian in this world with that kind of distance within my life. And so we realize immediately the, the most important thing that's been harmed, that needs to be taken care of immediately, is what has happened between me and my relationship with God and what my sin has done to that relationship and then, and then making, that, uh, making that right. And so if I only take myself into account uh, in terms of, of sin and the consequences of it, then I'll fail to confess my sin to God. I'll fail to ask Him for the forgiveness uh, of my, my sin in order to restore the fellowship with God. I will fail to ask the forgiveness of others that I have sinned against in, and have been affected uh, by my sin and as a result remove this stumbling block before them of ever becoming a Christian themselves or stumbling block within the relationship that we have uh, with, with one another, and it allows then for that relationship to be restored. Of course, our prisons and our jails all around the world, not just in the United States, are filled with inmates who deeply lament the consequences of their crime. And the greatest thing they lament is that they got caught and that they are incarcerated and, uh, and, and, and they're upset over the fact that they did get caught, but they don't lament committing their crimes as well. I'm not saying that's true of every inmate, but a lot of them. The greatest lamentation is, I got caught and I'm in prison because of what I did. And there's no lamentation over the committing of the crime or of the sin to begin with. And as a result, they remain a danger to society because they haven't learned the most important lesson related to the incarceration. The worst thing that you did was not get incarcerated. It is what you did against God and against humanity. 
And there'll never be a change in your life until that becomes the preeminent uh, thing. And so when God chastens us, and He does chasten us like He chastened the children of Israel, it's a deep chastening to not only where we lament the consequences of our sin, but we lament the fact that we even sin to begin with and that we launch these consequences forth in our life and created other consequences for uh, other people. The lamenting uh, of the committing of the sin altogether. And so God tells them there in verse 7 that the greatest and, and the one true mark of repentance is not creating a memorial day of fasting, uh, but to return to obedience to God's commandments that marked Israel when she, was inhab- she inhabited the land and when she prospered within the land. The reason that Judah went into captivity was not because she wasn't uh, honoring man-made Uh, man-initiated days of fasting. She went into captivity because she had stubbornly refused to obey God's call, uh, to obey His commandments through the prophets. And as a result, the only thing that fixes that is repentance. And a return to obedience, that's the only thing that can rectify uh, a situation of, of disobedience. So fasting uh, viewed as, as just a, a religious ritual uh, that then uh, in some way uh, diminishes the importance of obedience to God's Word in the mind of those who are fasting or is done in some way to replace or cover up an obedient life. Not only is it useless, but it's dangerous. And we'll come back to that in, in just a moment. He then heads into his second message to them in verse 8. And he declared, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true judgment. And so it was their rebellion, their disobedience that landed them into captivity. He's reinforcing that point. Not the fact that they weren't fasting often enough. (laughs) And and he's wanting them to see uh, what the real reason is for the pickle that they got in so they can make it it right. So he gives them a history lesson from from his perspective. And, And so he tells them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Here's what, here's what will uh, restore the relationship. Here's what will make things right. Not that fast that you made up on your own in Babylon, but execute true justice. Do the right thing in, in, uh, in, in your decision-making. Always uh, do, uh, doing the right thing regardless of of the circumstances or the pressures to do something other than than just. Not only concerning the courts, but concerning our own individual lives. So these are these are temptations that we face in our lives. And so we just stop and and God speaks to them. He speaks to us and says, This is what I want from you. As an example of the obedience that that I want from you. He said, execute true justice. Do what is right in every situation that's in your life. Let it be governed, let it be defined by the Word of God. Now that's a good thing to happen, uh, to hear. Now, because one of the things that happen is we can walk with the Lord, and we can walk with the Lord for a long time. And then a lot of this stuff that we learn, and, and the thou shalt and thou shalt nots, and all of these things, they can kind of get compartmentalized in our lives. And then we forget that decision by decision in our lives on a daily basis, one of the first questions that we need to ask is, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible tell me to do, to do here? And it's easy to drift away uh, from that. And so we can ask ourselves in the privacy of our own heart, when has, when's the last time a decision has come our way, and there's a couple, three different ways to go in the situation, and how long has it been, have I just been uh, plowing into all of these decisions day after day, week after week, month after month, and, and just knocking them out on my own, or when is the last time I stopped and I said, what is justice here? 
What does your word say about this, Lord? I want that to be the discipline in my life. I want that to be the first thought in my life when, when I'm going to make a decision. And so he calls them to come back to that. Do what is right based upon the word of God. Show mercy and compassion, uh, everyone to his brother. They were murdering one another. They were taking advantage of the poor and so forth. And so a return to compassion. When in doubt in the decision-making in our life, in our interactions with one another, when in doubt, grace. When in doubt, compassion toward other people. Now, that kind of a a way of viewing the world is disappearing. Uh, The Bible says that in the last days, men are going to become uh, savage. They're going to become brutal is the word that's used in the New King James. And we see how uh, brutal people are becoming toward uh, one another. And I don't know all of the reasons for it. I can guess it's some of them. But this whole, uh, this whole deal of looking at people with compassion and understanding that they're a human being, they have a past, they have feelings, all of these things. I don't know where they're coming from uh, in life. And so I want to deal with them in compa- with, with compassion here and uh, compassion is and mercy is what holds up over the long run rather than you know trying to uh, give everyone what they deserve in life he said do not oppress the widow or the fatherless the alien or the poor let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother and so they were taking advantage of the widows they were taking advantage of the orphans the fatherless the alien the poor the powerless within the culture Why did they do it? Because they could. The powerful did it because they could. And he says, I want you to come back and I want you to treat every single human being, whether they are a king or whether they are whatever below that, I want you to treat all of them equally as as those that represent me in the world. And that's good for us to be reminded of as well. It's one of the great things about uh, getting a little bit older in life. You realize there are wonderful people and awful people at the very top. And you realize there are wonderful people and awful people in it, where the world considers to be uh, the bottom. People are people. The people are individuals. And they need to be treated as individuals and, and uh, assessed in that way. So he says, I don't want you looking and saying, well, and, and have this factor into our thinking, because they're rich and powerful, I'll treat them one way, and then because they're not, I'll sell them this car that's got a gas leak and uh, tops 1,500 more miles in it before the whole engine blows. Or what is ever this equivalent of it in, in this, in this uh, culture? And so none of you are to plan evil in his heart. And the idea of thinking about how I can oppress other people, get ahead of them in the situation, take advantage of them in the situation. So I don't know, you don't know my heart tonight. I don't know your heart tonight. We don't know that who might be sitting here and somebody's working on a deal right here and that you're just going to cut somebody's throat in some kind of a situation because you've got the leverage in, in the situation, but you would never do it. Uh, you would never do it to a king, never do it to a rich person, never do it to a powerful person, but I can do it to this person because what can they do about it? And, and so it really searches our hearts because our hearts are uh, deceitful above all things and desperately uh, wicked. And so he speaks to them about uh, uh, these are, if they needed examples of what uh, he was talking about in terms of the importance of obedience, he lays them out uh, for, uh, for them. And then he said, but they refused. He continues the history lesson. Uh, these were the things that were being practiced. But when I sent my messengers to, to warn people to repent of this, this was the reception that they got. They refused to heed. They shrugged their shoulders and they stopped their ears so they could not hear. So they just wouldn't listen to any of the prophets that God sent to them, as we've, we've seen. And uh, they just shrug their shoulders. And the, it's a word picture. It's like a, a picture of trying to put a, a yoke on an oxen that doesn't want the yoke put on them. Uh, they're just not going to let it happen. They're not going to let God's Word uh, settle. And, uh, and, and then speaking here 
of the fact that they would not hear. And so you remember, God sent the prophets, He sent the prophets, they prophesied and prophesied and prophesied for years. And in some cases, like with Jeremiah, for decades, for 40 years. Nobody listened. Not one recorded convert in Jeremiah's ministry. You think those three-year-olds are hard. Or whatever the group might be. That's a hard audience to invest that kind of length of time and nobody turns that he's, uh, is recorded uh, for us there. It's kind of funny when you... you I remember um, in Calvary Chapel of Napa where I got going with the Lord and Karen got saved and all. I remember one time the pastor, he announced that on the Wednesday night he was going to begin a study in the book of Isaiah. The whole congregation cheered. Isaiah, we're starting the book of Isaiah. And so he began, and though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as you'll be as white as snow, and then on into where Pastor Tim taught a couple of weeks ago in talking about in the year that King Uzziah died, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then you kind of get past that chapter six, and it becomes a little repetitive, doesn't it? You might have noticed it. And he's saying the same thing over and over and over and over again to them. And then the atmosphere changed in the congregation. People say, uh, when's he going to go to the book of Philippians? <laughs> or get out of this right there? And the teacher's more aware of it than really anybody else as well. And so he was faithful to warn them. He said, yes, they make their hearts like flint. They refuse to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. And thus, as a consequence for this, and thus as a consequence word because of their willful disobedience, their failure to repent, thus the great uh, thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts, and therefore it happened that just as He proclaimed that, he, uh, that they would not hear, they wouldn't listen to Him anymore, so they called out and, and prayed to Me, God said, and I stopped listening to them, says the Lord of hosts. But I then scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them and so that no one passed through or returned for they made the pleasant land desolate. God is communicating, you're all upset over the temple. That isn't even on my radar for being a concern about this chapter in your history. I'm not concerned at all about the destruction of that temple. In fact, I allowed it to be happen, happen. What that season was about was your disobedience to me against all of the, uh, the warnings that I had given to you, the failure to repent. That's the reason that chastening and judgment came upon you, not because you weren't fasting enough. Uh, related to the temple or uh, related to anything or any kind of uh, uh, religious uh, activity. They were responsible for uh, those, uh, those uh, consequences that had come upon them. This was the issue that God wanted them to be the takeaway from, uh, from this season in their life. Now, there's only really one way to solve the problem of disobedience to God's Word, and that is just to be, become obedient to His Word. And, 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 G, and the Lord is saying here, there's no amount of ritual, there's no amount of man-made or man-originating, and religions are fabulous at coming up with these kind of things, no man-originating kind of self-sacrifice that you can uh, come up with, some means of flogging yourself or crawling up the steps to St. Whatever's Cathedral on steps, a million steps long, none of those kind of things. None of that fixes anything. I don't even want that. The solution to disobedience and what happened to you is just simply repentance of the sin and a return to being obedient uh, to, to me. And nothing can take the pace, place of that repentance and that return to obedience. And here, through Zechariah, God reminds them 
end us of the folly of just merely remembering a, a past event uh, divorced of a full understanding of the event. Why did the event occur? What's the bottom line here? What is God doing here in, in this situation? In other words, God's saying, don't merely remember the destruction of the temple. Remember why it was destroyed and mourn that. And one of the reasons that this is important is ritual sacrifice or ritual fasting is a snap compared to obeying God and His commandments. Because we make these things up, not because there's some great burden in our life, it's because it's something that we can accommodate in our life and something that is easier to do than obeying God's commandments. And so it's, a, it's an, a, a, an attempt to give a moral equivalence to both of them. And they're not equivalent at all, but it's the religious kind of mind game that we can, we can tend uh, to play in, in all of this. The religious, uh, Jewish religious leaders at the time of Jesus, they would be uh, ultimately guilty of this very same thing that Zechariah is warning uh, against. Elevating man-made ordinances, man-made rituals, and traditions above the demands of God's Word, above obedience to God's Word as being the preeminent thing in God's, God's people. And Jesus uh, rebuked it. And uh, uh, then the Pharisees, and some of the scribes, Mark chapter 7, they came together to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. And they saw some of His disciples were eating bread with defiled, that is, ceremonially unwashed hands. And they found fault. For the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. Not because God had called them to, but because to do that, but because it was a tradition of the elders. And then when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed. And there were many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. And then the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders. They elevated tradition and man-originating uh, ritual above obedience to uh, the Word of God, and they do to this very day. And, uh, but you allow them, they said, to eat bread with unwashed hands. And Jesus answered and He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. You elevate it above obedience. And he said, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, a clear command, and that he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say... If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. And then Jesus said, as a result of this, making the Word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. It's the natural tendency. Of, of religious man to move in this kind uh, of, of a direction. And any time we add these kind of man-made things to Christianity, no matter how uh, noble the goal might be or how uh, uh, pure our hearts might be in doing that, it just complicates Christianity in a way that God does not want it to be complicated. It moves our focus. The Bible talks about the fact that we have a single eye. That means that we can look at one thing uh, at a time and give our, our greatest attention to we have got only can do one thing at a time. And if I'm going to establish a bunch of man-made rituals and man-made traditions and I'm going to focus people's eyes upon that, 
then of necessity, their eye is going to be taken off of the main thing, and that is the, the obedience, the importance of obedience to the Word of God. And always it does that. You, it, you, I'm sure their hearts were noble in establishing this fact on, on some uh, fast, on some, some level. But it, it complicates a relationship with God in a way that God does not want it to be complicated at all. He doesn't need, uh, uh, need the, the, the help. And, and, uh, and He wants us to know that obedience to His Word is the single great means by which we can express our love to Him. Not any man-originated ritual or tradition or ordinance that we would come up with. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's about as compressed a statement as, as you can make. That's about as, as compact and clean and unmisunderstandable as it can be. If you love me, and I know you do, and you want to bless me, and I know you do, keep my commandments. It's just that simple. I don't, I don't need uh, any more help than that, and that, and you don't need the aggravation. Just keep my commandments as an expression of love. In terms of this whole tendency, Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul wrote, and he said, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, talking about man-made religious uh, uh, regulations. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle all these things that people make up in order to prove our love to God or to prove that we, we love Him more than everybody else. He said, which, uh, which all concern uh, things which perish with the using according to the, the commandments and the doctrines of men. He said, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look holy. They look right. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. An example of this kind of thing is coming up with the uh, ordinance of not eating meat on Fridays, uh, which uh, some uh, do as a, I can't tell you how many fish sticks I've eaten on Friday uh, growing up. I don't know how many of you did the same thing. I might have felt a little different if we got halibut or salmon or something like that, but we got fish sticks uh, growing up on Friday because we couldn't eat meat on Friday as kind of a nod to Good Friday and, and the sacrifice that Jesus made uh, on the cross for our sins. And then there's the observance of Ash Wednesday, uh, the application of ashes upon the forehead uh, of, of, of the person as a symbol of, of penance, mourning for our sins, a reminder of, of, of human mortality, the need to be reconciled with God. And then all of it followed by uh, observing a season of, of Lent, a 40-day period of fasting or abstaining uh, from uh, certain things, sac sacrificial uh, abstinence of certain things as a um, kind of a uh, uh, becoming one with Jesus' 40 days of being in the wilderness following His water baptism when He was tempted by the devil to begin His uh, public ministry. And so this whole season of Lent comes uh, out of that. And, I, and I, I'm sure there are very many good people who uh, uh, practice these things without denying the importance of of uh, obedience to God's commandments uh, 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 as well. But how many people refrain from eating meat on Friday uh, or they go and they get the ash put on, on their forehead uh, and, and they acknowledge the, the season of Lent and they come to believe that all of these things are now more important than obedience. And as long as they do those things, then whether they do or don't obey God's commandments, especially the ones that are harder for them to obey, that that really is now a secondary thing, that these traditions, uh, these, these rituals now uh, take the place of that. 
and uh, the one has a terrible, terrible tendency to eclipse the other. I remember one time Karen and I were in Lucerne, uh, Switzerland, many, many years ago now, and that place was crazy. I mean, uh, I won't say everybody was drunk, but everyone was drunk uh, out on the bridge and along the streets, and it was getting really rowdy and kind of like uh, groping things that were starting to uh, happen a little bit, and I, I, uh, we were both stunned by it and wondering what in the world is, you know, is going on? What's, what's happening here that people are doing all of this kind of thing? And, and the, we were told the explanation uh, was that they're committing all of the sins before the season of Lent that they will have to give up during the season of Lent, but then return to after the season of Lent is over. And, and this is this is what can happen. How the one can become elevated uh, above the other and it confuses everything. And so it's best just not to add these kind of things to Christianity. Just keep obeying His Word is the focus for how to bless Him and, and express our love uh, to Him. And I think that even this thing is to be uh, shunned uh, when, even when it's done under noble kind of a, a motivation. It's certainly to be shunned when it's done deliberately to evade obeying God's Word. Where somebody says, okay, God's commandments say this. And, uh, and let's see, there's five of them out there. And this particular one is really hard for me. It represents real sacrifice to my flesh and a dying to my flesh in order to keep that particular commandment. And so we do this negotiation in our mind and we say, all right, I will do twice as much in these other four areas and it will cover my disobedience in this area. And we start to do this negotiation in our minds with God to where, well, I gave twice as much as I normally would. Or I serve in twice as many ministries as I normally would, so God will turn a blind eye to my disobedience in this other area, as if we can draw Him into this, uh, this kind of uh, things that we do to appease our, our guilty conscience. And so it's a real temptation, and, and, he, and he invests an entire chapter here uh, to blowing it up, not only for them, but, but making us aware uh, of the folly of making these kind of things a focus in our Christian life as, as uh, apart from just walking with God and obeying His commandments, which are absolutely good for us. And there's no harm in, in, in doing that. And then he gives his third message in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. And again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. Now remember, the children of Israel are returning from a 70-year captivity. Uh, they're returning from a very, very long backslide. A very, very long backslide decades before they ever went into captivity and then whatever time it took in that captivity for God to get their attention and draw them back. And one of the things that you wonder about when you backslide like that, or you backslide for an hour, or you backslide for 10 minutes, is you wonder about, is God interested, still interested in me? Is He still interested in a, a relationship with me? And so you see that, uh, that I am zealous for Zion there. We're now, as we've been chastened for our sin, now we're zealous for God. Now we're zealous for Him. We've, we've learned our lesson and we've realized this is no way to go and now I want back with God and if He gives me another chance, will, um, uh, if I turn to Him, will He give me another chance? And here's the good news is God says, I am. You're zealous to return. You're zealous to change. I am zealous to meet you in that place and, and to restore you. And it's, it's powerful. If you've ever 
sinned, let alone backslidden, uh, you realize how powerful uh, this is. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal I, and with great fervor. I am uh, uh, zealous for her. I'm not through with Israel. I'm not through with the Christian who uh, sins or even backslides when they return to me. I've got all kinds of love, all kinds of zeal, all kinds of plans for that kind of person. And I can't wait to get started, God is saying here. And so what a relief for them to hear that. What a relief for us to hear. And then the Lord as if that wasn't uh, a, enough, uh, he declares further to him in verse 3, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So again, we return to God, but will He return to us? God says, I will return uh, to Zion and dwell in the midst of uh, Jerusalem. And so this speaks of uh, of the fact that in, in terms of us and our relationship with God, that He, if we've grieved His Holy Spirit, if we've quenched His Holy Spirit, uh, He will return to our lives. He'll return to His fullness within our lives as He was going to bring His fullness back into Zion, into Jerusalem. Remember, He left over the Kidron Valley. The Holy Spirit departed from the temple because of the greatness of their sin. And God said, I'll return. Uh, back to my former place in your life and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem shall be called uh, the city of truth. It's going to become uh, a city that is uh, known for, uh, for truth, completely devoted to truth. And some of this is going to be fulfilled during the kingdom age, the thousand-year reign, uh, reign of Christ in terms of a far, a far fulfillment. Uh, and, uh, but Jerusalem one day to be known completely as, as a, a place that's completely devoted to truth and an influence for truth in, in the whole world. There won't be any more hypocrisy in, in a, a relationship with God. It's really going to be something. And then he goes further and says that um, uh, she shall be uh, and be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And so uh, she's going to become the holy mountain. Holiness is going to mark her life, uh, her, her city once again. Holiness can remark our lives when we turn back. Uh, to, uh, to Him. He gives us a fresh start. He gives us a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit now to walk with Him. And we've learned the lesson. Okay, this was the thing that we thought was, and, and in our, in our uh, stupidity, we followed it down that path. It, 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 it bit us and it bit us hard. We realized that only God knows what He's talking about in this area of our life or any area of, of our life. And now I'm more committed to holiness and obeying His Word than ever before and, and want to, uh, to do that and to be marked by holiness. And then he said, thus said the Lord of hosts, old men and, uh, and, uh, old, men and old women shall again sit in the seats of Jerusalem, each one with a staff in his hand because of old age. Now that's that's, uh, that's real old age when you're talking about someone that needs a staff now uh, to get around. The streets of Jerusalem were not safe for vulnerable people, old people or young people, when they went into captivity. God says, I've got plans for you. I'm going to do great things. Again, this is kind of a kingdom age promise. Uh, uh, related to uh, after Jesus' second coming where the city is going to be safe for the most vulnerable of its population, those of great age, and then the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls uh, playing in its uh, streets. And so, one of the greatest sounds that you ever want to hear in life at the other end of the spectrum from old people with staffs is to have young children outside uh, playing. And all of the screams and the laughing that occur, that word playing that's used there in verse 5, it literally means laughing. And one of the great uh, joys in life is to have a childhood that involves laughing and involves playing. And then one of the great joys in life when you reach my age is to listen to children laughing and to watch them playing. 
And when I was growing up, and I'm not going to go into some big lament here or anything, uh, but we didn't have all the screens and all the technology and all the distractions and everything. Kids played out on the street. And you heard them until the curfew, which was nightfall, uh, to come into the house. And so you heard these sounds a lot more than you do today, where we're kind of uh, in our bunkers and that kind of thing. And we don't know uh, which mass murder is living on our left or on our right. And uh, the isolation of our culture and, uh, and putting in a third alarm system and uh, whatever it might be. And, and so it, the, the picture is one of, uh, of just uh, real beauty and, and a picture of peace, a, a picture of, of security. And again, this has application to any backslider in any age. Uh, I, I love the passage it talks about, uh, it's in Isaiah, talks about uh, the, the highway of holiness. And, and it, it states that um, the highway of holiness is safe and, and in essence says that you don't even have to be smart to be on that highway of holiness. All, and, and the highway of holiness is obedience to God's Word and you're safe on that path. And, and anybody can be on that path. We don't have to be, we, whether we're smart, whether we're dumb, whether we get things by reading or we get things by example or whatever it might be, that's a safe place. And when the backslider comes back and says, all right, I want to live my life your way. I want to live it according to your word. Thank you for a second chance here. Thank you for forgiving me. Uh, then uh, that is a return to a life that is filled with peace and filled with security. And thus says the Lord of hosts, it is, uh, if, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it, not, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. So he gives them these promises. He's got a great future for them, a great future for Jerusalem. And he says, I know you're listening to this and excited about what I'm saying, but I want, what I want you to understand is I'm just as excited to do it. And here we got to understand the difference between conviction and condemnation when we sin or if we backslide. So what happens is, if we sin, we sin deliberately. We know damage has been done now to our relationship with God. We don't feel the freedom uh, that we had a day before, a week before, whatever it might be. There's a strain now on the relationship. And, and, uh, and so the conviction of the Holy Spirit will always make me aware of that sin, but the Holy Spirit will then always drive me to God. He'll assure me of God's forgiveness. Oh, He'll spank me. Uh, he'll, he can give me a whooping. And, and I don't have a problem with that. So He can be strong with us. And, and make us learn the lesson that I'm supposed to learn from, from that so we don't do it again. But He always draws us to restore, to restore the relationship and, and always pushes us toward God. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is different, and that comes from the devil, where he says, you're not going to God after what you did there. There's no way. And the condemnation always pushes us away from God. And that's a good way to know that when we sin and we think, man, I have blown it here. I want to turn back to God here. And if I feel conviction related to that and a desire to restore, I'm dealing with the Holy Spirit. If I feel condemnation, then that's of the devil. Because I can confess my sin and repent of my sin in a moment and be restored to God. So there isn't this thing where, now you, listen, you did it. They're pretty ticked off uh, at you up in heaven right now. If I were you, I'd lay low for about three days before you even think you can talk to God. And that's never the Holy Spirit's uh, way of dealing uh, with, uh, uh, with us. And so... Uh, here God says, I will be happy to do this. And thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. His promise to restore them back into the land. That has happened even today. The ultimate fulfillment will be uh, after Jesus' second coming. And then he encourages them to 
continue in their work related to the temple. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong in rebuilding it. Uh, You who have been been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the days the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. So they're halfway through the project. God says, now keep Keep on that work. I've, I've brought you back into Jerusalem. One of the reasons is to rebuild this temple. And so he tells them that what they're doing is very, very important. And we've seen this a couple of times in the book of Zechariah already, but it bears repeating. No matter what God has called us to do, however significant we think it is or insignificant that we think it is, it's all significant. It all place its own part in this grand plan of God uh, that culminates in Jesus' second coming, the thousand-year reign of Christ, ultimately a new heaven and in a new earth. What we're doing is important, or He wouldn't have called us to do what He's called us to do. So it gives weight, needed weight, that we look at it, we try to figure it out. What difference does this make? What difference if I go on or I quit or any of these kind of things? And again, as we've spoken before, that's not our problem. Uh, it is a part of the plan, and so it's important. It gives real significance to our Christian service, and it protects us from uh, becoming a, a, a self-analyzing it and typically self-analyzing ourselves right out of our calling. For before these days there were no wages for men nor any hire for beasts. There were no peace, was no peace from the enemy for whoever went in or came in. Uh, uh, for I set all men against uh, uh, his uh, everyone uh, against his neighbor. So he says, remember your life in your uh, season of, of backsliding and, and disobedience. You remember how hard it was. You remember how scarce. You remember the lack of my blessings within, within your life. And he says, but now you've repented. Now you've returned to me. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall uh, be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens will give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. So the law of Moses had two categories. Uh, One was uh, thou shalt, and the blessings associated with obeying the thou shalts, and then the thou shalt nots, that were, and then the curses that would accompany the thou shalt nots. They'd already experienced the curses of, of disobeying the thou shalt nots and, do, and doing that. And now, in returning to God, now they will experience uh, the, the blessings of the thou shalt. So again, in the privacy of our own hearts, if you've ever backslidden for any length of time, you realize that there is a curse. There are consequences. The, the blessings of God dry up in our lives. The greatest blessing being our relationship uh, with Him. And the consequences are strong. We feel them. They're part of what brings us back to God. But God says, once I come back to Him, then the blessings that, that associate the thou shalt shall be as strong in our lives as ever the cursings upon the thou shalt not. And it's, and it's an important confidence to have in our lives related to these things. Everything can change in my life in a second. In the, in the changing of my will, to confess my sin, to turn from that sin, return to God, and we get off of one plan of God and we get on to a completely different one of blessing. 
And, it hap- and it's just a decision away uh, from, from anyone. And He's letting them know, this is the path that you have uh, put yourself on. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I uh, determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again in these days, I'm determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house uh, of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things which you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in uh, your gates for truth and justice and peace. Treat everybody alike, no respecter of persons, whether they're rich or poor, powerful or, or not powerful. And do not love a false uh, oath. No lying. For all of these thi- are things uh, that I hate, says the Lord. And then the word of the Lord uh, of hosts came to me, Zechariah said, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast uh, of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore, love truth and peace. So God says, uh, all, all of this fasting that you've been doing, uh, now with your restoration to me, it's all going to give way now to a life of, of feasts and cheerfulness and joy and uh, gladness. And it's all going to happen uh, absolutely unassociated with the fasts that you came up with in order to some kind, how pull something over on me. It's all going to happen because of a return to obedience. And thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall come, inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us continue to go and to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself uh, also will go. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. God is saying that Jerusalem, as He speaks to them prophetically, Jerusalem is going to become the center of worship in the entire world. Again, that will happen in the kingdom age. People will come from all different nations. They'll come to seek the Lord of hosts. They'll come to seek Him in Jerusalem to pray before Him. Verse 23, Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations, that is, Gentiles from all kinds of different countries, they will grab the sleeve of a Jewish man and they will say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And the whole world is going to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, Jesus Himself, during the kingdom age. And there will be no more uh, dividing of mankind on the part of nations or nationalities. No more anti-Semitism. Uh, praise the Lord in that day as well. And a longing for everyone to just simply come and to, uh, to worship the Lord in, in spirit and, and in truth. And so, these lessons that we look at in these, these two chapters, the, that obedience to God's commandments is entirely sufficient for expressing our, our love to Him. Nothing else is required. It's simple by design. And then to make sure that our lives are marked by uh, o- obedience and that we haven't entered into some kind of a negotiation uh, with God in order to continue the practice of some kind of sin by being doubly obedient over here as if you could be doubly obedient related to anything and say, I'll give you twice this if you overlook this. Make sure that's not a part of any of our lives tonight. And then that repentance will bring an unobstructed, the fullness of a relationship with God is there waiting for us. If we will draw a return to Him, He will gladly return to us. What amazing grace. And then the reminder that our Christian service, however small we may think of it, it is significant, it is important, and to continue in it uh, because it is somehow plays a part in this great plan that God is unfolding in human history that is one day going to come to a glorious end. So very practical lessons in these, these two chapters. We'll close there tonight and let's stand and we'll pray.
Father, we see that there's really nothing new under the sun, and that's reassuring to us in some respects where we see that the same kind of temptations that the children of Israel entered into and somehow trying to find a relationship with You that they could negotiate away obedience and replace it with something else of their own devising. And we acknowledge that we've all got a Pharisee in us. We've all got a negotiator in us. We're all capable of the same thing. And so just wash that away from any of our hearts or lives or experiences that might be a part of our lives tonight and just return us to the simplicity of what Christianity uh, really, really is. Thank You for Your grace within our lives. Thank You that as we read these things, they're not foreign concepts to us, even uh, backsliding or even uh, disobedience. We see what's happening here, but we see Your glory in all of it. And we thank You that everything, Lord, if not by the same measure, everything that You poured out upon the children of Israel in their restoration, You have done in degree, in the same measure in in our lives in such a wonderful way. We celebrate You. We rejoice in the fact that we really are the trophies of Your grace. We think about how gracious You have been to us, and we praise You for that tonight. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, you need to get that taken care of. We'll be up in front immediately after the service and would love to pray with you to make Jesus your Savior, make Him your Lord, begin that relationship with God that we've been talking about uh, tonight, receive the forgiveness of sins, the confidence of heaven, all of these things that God has for you uh, in, in His Son. And we'd love to pray with you. If you need prayer for anything tonight, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Mike, would you close us?